Hey there, this is Jay from Filmstrip dropping in to let you know you're about to hear a classic episode from our archives. Some of these shows were produced before we called the show Filmstrip Podcast, before we used popcorn ratings, uh, had the standard intro song from Frozen Lake 121, or really even knew what we were doing recording and editing the show. However, there's a lot of fun in them, and we hope you enjoy. Just wanted to let you know in case you noticed the differences. Now, on to the show. I don't think this is very funny. Bobby. Who is this? As you watch the screen, your heart begins to beat faster. There's a fluttering in the pit of your stomach. Your throat is dry. Your palms damp. Suddenly a chill runs down your spine. You clutch the person next to you. You tell yourself, it's only a movie. It's only a movie. But sooner or later, it's time to go. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Anna. And this is our review of When a Stranger Calls, starring Charles Durning, Carol Kane, Colleen Dewhurst, Rachel Roberts, Ron O'Neill, and Tony Beckley. Co-written and directed by Fred Walton, released in 1979 on a budget of 740000 grossed over $21 million, and became the epitome of the babysitter and the man upstairs urban legend. Now... This is the first film in our Shocktober list of movies, and full disclosure, I've seen this one many, many, many times. But Anna, this is brand new for you, right? Yes. You it's gener- brand new. Yeah, you generally don't go for horror films, so and which is no, not so much. Yeah, which is one of the biggest reasons we brought you on this one. But I won't lie, the other one is because you do represent the female point of view in our universe here, and you do have small children. So, and a lot of this film sort of centers around that idea, so we definitely wanted your perspective on it. But, you know, this is, the the urban legend type films, I mean, that's always been something that horror films have gone to, thriller films have gone to, and... Certainly there are other examples of it, but most of the time when when people think of a horror film about someone calling and harassing the babysitter, a lot of people, even if they don't remember the name of this movie, will remember the opening 20 minutes of it. So you'd never seen any clips of it at all, anything? No, I, I had a vague idea of what it was about. My neighbors, are, my well, my old neighbors are huge horror fans, and they they have seen this and talked about it many, many times. And so I had a vague idea of what it was about. And indeed, it's been one of the things I've wanted to review since we started this podcast. 
so long ago, and I guess we'll go ahead and tell them now. We're doing all three of these. There's this one. There's a direct-to-DVD sequel that came out in 1993 to this that we'll get to, and then there was a 2006 remake back when horror remakes were, uh, you know, well, they still are a big thing, but they, you know, one of those mini ones, and we're going to get to all of those, plus a couple of other fun things for Shocktober, but Anna and I will be in here for the When a Stranger Calls uh, flicks all the way. So let me just ask you out of the gate before we get into the plot, any of that other stuff, just the whole experience, the urban legend angle, you know, do you buy it? Do you like it? Is it clever or is it, you know, too much? Well, I have to say, as I'm watching this, especially the first 20 minutes and stuff of it, I'm like, I wish they would just show me the door. And that's what I try to avoid. <laughs> like, I don't like stuff like Friday the or Saw or Friday the 13th, but I thought this was like 10 times scarier than one of those. I was like, because it's like the Blair Witch Project, and we've talked about this offline, you let your imagination go, and sometimes your imagination can be way worse than anything they put on the screen. I, I would agree with that, that your imagination is often worse than what you, if you're going with a movie, than what is on the screen in front of you. And I think that's one of the brilliant parts of the opening of this film in particular is the way that they build the suspense. And I, I'm reluctant to even call this a horror movie. This is really a thriller. It is. The other thing is, you were saying earlier about my perspective with the small children and female perspective. Um, I, I actually watched these at work, this at work, and so it, it was still scary with all the lights on in my office, and and nobody's gonna hurt me, but it was still very <laughs> suspenseful. And then um, we had gone out of town, and then the first night, like. A night or two back, um, my mom had left and things went back to normal. And usually at night, I'm like the babysitter in this film. My husband goes to sleep way earlier than I do. The kids go to sleep. And so this is my time to kind of catch up on chores, to, you know, do some work or to watch something on TV that I want that nobody else wants to watch or just some time to decompress. And the house is usually quiet, me and the dog. So, and I sent you an email to this effect too. Um, putting up some laundry in the linen closet in my house is right next to my daughter's room and I go to check on her like I normally do and all I could hear in my head in my head was have you checked the children <laughs> have you checked the children and it just totally freaked me out I was so freaked out and I'm I'm thinking okay I gotta set my alarm I gotta get I'm, I've got I'm like thank god I got my dog even though she's just a little <laughs> wiener dog if she, anyone comes near the house she barks and I'm going through and I mean I don't have a big house I have have a ranch for crying out loud and it's not like if someone was in my house I wouldn't know it but I'm going through my house looking in everything and I just get in the bed all completely freaked out and I was just, uh, and I mean I just kept thinking that have you checked the children and then all these images of the children just laying up there murdered and that they don't really show but kind of that my imagination i'm like just covering up in the covers and and in that respect i was that's when i realized i'm like i wish somebody just show me you know i wish (laughs) somebody just pop up with a knife and kill somebody for crying out loud and see that's the thing that's the difference between a horror film and a thriller film is the thriller 
pays that off only once at the very end. You know, the, the horror film eventually will give in and show you Michael Myers, show you Jason, you know, whoever popping out and, and doing the thing or, or in saw, you know, you sort of go through the whole jigsaw thing. So yeah, that's all a part of it. Well, before we get any further into this, let's go ahead and do a plot summary real quick. Anna, for those who haven't seen it, spoiler alert, here it comes. Jill Johnson, played by Carol Kane, is babysitting for a physician and his wife. Throughout the evening, Jill receives ominous phone calls from a man who sometimes says nothing and other times simply asks, have you checked the children before hanging up? Jill becomes frightened after (laughs) – already gets you, huh? Jill becomes frightened after a few of these calls and contacts the police who tell her to try to keep the caller on the line so they can trace it. She succeeds in doing this and the caller threatens her. The police call back and tell her the calls are coming from inside the house. Jill runs to escape and is met by Lieutenant Clifford. We learn in the aftermath that the children have been dead the whole time and the killer was stalking Jill, though no one seems to know why the vagabond from England chose the house or her. The killer, Kurt Duncan, is institutionalized for seven years and then escapes. Homeless, he wanders to a local bar and attempts to talk to a woman who refuses his advances. Duncan follows her to her home and asks for help, which she still refuses. Meanwhile, Clifford, now retired policeman and working as a private detective, is hired by the doctor to find Kirk Duncan and kill him as both deem him too unstable and sick to be let back out into the world. Clifford tracks down Duncan and almost gets him before Duncan makes a last-minute escape. Duncan comes across a newspaper clipping and recognizes Jill, who's grown up, gotten married to a successful executive, is a community activist, and has two children of her own. He finds her and calls her at a restaurant with the same taunt, Have you checked the children? which sends her and her husband scrambling for home. They arrive to see all is well, but Jill still feels uneasy. She hears a noise from the closet and is horrified to learn that the killer has attacked her husband and is lying next to her. The two struggle, and Clifford, who was still chasing Duncan, bursts in at the last second and shoots him dead. And that is the plot of When a Stranger Calls. So I think we really, to talk about this thing, the one thing to know is that there are three distinct parts to this movie. And the first 20 minutes is really all that Fred Walton initially came up with. It was going to be a short And it was the success of a little movie called Halloween in 1978 and the money of a studio that got him to think, hey, can we expand this idea and get another horror movie out there? Because that's what, you know, was selling. Nobody thought Halloween was going to be a hit. And then when it was, you know, you saw this glut of thriller slasher horror movies and this was just another one that they wanted to pump out so they built the rest of the story from the first act but it's really the first act that everyone knows and like we've already talked about is the most thrilling part of the whole thing and and i do know as i was catching up on this and reading this that a lot of the a lot of stuff i read online said that one of the problems with this movie is part is the second and third part is it's very it's got very a lot of plot holes and it's i mean it doesn't make a whole lot of sense even for a horror movie yeah and i think that the thing about horror movies the ones that work and i, I talked about like halloween uh you know the grandfather of them all psycho you know the, some of the other ones that really work well it's because their plot is basically very simple and in the start of this one, the plot is very, very simple. The problem is it becomes incredibly convoluted because particularly when we have to reintroduce Jill back into the third act, I mean, that's a really, well, we'll talk about it when we get there, but it's, it's a pretty weak way they get her back into the story. Like it doesn't, 
it almost doesn't even work, but you go with it if you're going to go with it or not. But the, I, I agree with you. The second and third act, this movie starts to fall apart a little bit. Um, though I, you know, there's some of it I will you know, want to ask you about because I, I tend to go with a little bit more of it than, than the average bear, but you're right. It, it is mostly any praise this film gets is because of this first bit. And let's talk about the first bit. I mean, it's a great opening. It's just this real simple kind of strings and little, I don't know, haunting theme and this girl walking down the street to go to a babysitting gig. And I could imagine in the 1970s when this was made, and this is supposed to be the early 70s when we opened the film, that that was just how life was. Yeah, I I got that, but I, I agree with you. I agree with that part. But as a parent, on the second part, because as I'm watching it, and Jay, you've seen it way more than I have. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I was under the impression that um, I was under the impression that the kid that the that he had done all the all all the killing or murdering the children before the parents even left that the babysitter wasn't there for like hours and hours and hours or did I, or did I miss something? In no, the cause they, they walk in and they've just gotten the kids to go to sleep and the parents are ready to leave. And then we kind of cut away to her sitting there, you know, doing homework, talking on the phone and we're never told how much time elapses. Okay, and that was one of the problems I had with that was one of the problems I had with the first part. I, I've always gone with this that what we really see is basically the last hour or so of her babysitting gig because remember the the mom says the thing to her like we're going to go to dinner and if we decide to go to a movie we'll be really late. Please don't wake up the kids; they're both getting over colds. So Jill knows she's in for a long night one way or the other. Yeah, and yeah. So so I took it as, you know, she had been there a couple of hours and was talking to her girlfriend and then started getting calls and he killed the kids and broke into the house and killed the kids after he saw the parents leave. See, that's not how I, I took it. I took it that because um, the mother says that we're going to go to we're going to go eat and we she says something kind of like we'll be home in two out in a couple hours and if not then we'll be home in just four hours she gives yeah. a time frame and she gives a time frame when she's talking to jill initially and yeah. so it made me think well oh that's one of the things that kind of as i'm watching this i'm like okay because the cops say that the kids have been dead for hours i'm thinking okay did he kill them before the parents left or after the parents left and it, it was just i guess it's just as a parent it's kind of a sticking point and it kind of freaked me out because i'm like how could the parents not know that the kids are up there dead yeah yeah and i i kind of took it is that they he killed them not long after they left and, and jill had arrived you know, that, that they had been dead a long time but that you know, everything that goes down here is really about a four hour swing. Cause you know, remember the last, when she does the whole trace call bit with him, she's trying to keep him on the phone by going, you know, the, the Mandrakis will be home. And he's like, I know. So you get the idea that somehow or another, he maybe would, had already broken into the house and was eavesdropping on that anyway. You know I mean? You could, oh, take, yeah. you could take it that way. I mean, again, I, I know that cause I've seen this so many times, but either way, they leave and Jill's there alone. And what starts working about this film is that there's really nothing that happens for about mm, five minutes here. It's her talking on the phone to a girl friend about tell Bobby I like him, but don't tell him I like him. You know, that whole bit. Yeah, and she says she says something, too, about give him this number and he can call me. Yeah. Now, let me ask you this. Is is Jill a high school student or do you buy her for a college student? 
Oh, I don't know. That's a very good question. I would buy her for a high school student. I, I bought her as I've always seen this as high school until I watched it this time. And then it's something about the way when she decides she's like freaking out and she pours a drink. She doesn't do it like a high school student would. A high school student would just drink straight out of the box. Oh. She pours that drink like somebody <laughs> knows what she's doing. And I'm sort of assuming most 17-year-olds don't know how to you know, pour a scotch in the rocks the right way. I don't know. Not that I do. But I I just – I don't know. I just read that this time. And then when you see her later, she – you know, Carol Kane was like 27 when they shot this anyway. So she doesn't look like mm-hmm. she's in high school at all. And when, when they let her hair down, she looks – she looks a lot older and so when they go seven years later i'm like well i could kind of buy she's 20 you know and and then you know maybe she's almost 30 by the second part of it i I don't Mm -hmm. i don't know that it matters it's just you know she's alone and but with her whole conversation with her girlfriend too is another thing they don't talk about i'll see you at the dance i'll see you at school are you going to the game you know they don't they talk about like did you see this guy i really like him i don't know i i don't it's a little thing to get hung up on, but I was curious how old you thought she was. I still think she's young, but she's. No, I thought she was about 17. If I if I was to guess, I think she was about 17, 16 or 17. Yeah. And like I say, it works either way, you know, one way or the other. But she's got this this job and nothing's happening. And it's just a really the thing about this thing that works is that this house is gorgeous, but it's really dark. You know, she's really sitting kind of in the dark room by herself. And I don't know about you, like when you, because I never did any babysitting, but when you did it and the kids were in bed, did you like just sit in the living room in the dark or what? I I did honestly babysit once. And no, I actually, I was actually in the room with the child. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but I just, I don't know. I thought it was neat that she's just sort of down there alone, but they've set that up already because don't disturb them. Please do not bother them. They're sick and I don't, I don't want them to be, you know, disturbed. And then that's the other thing. I think if I, that, um, that I don't know if it makes this work or not work, but, um, as a, I don't know if, I, I guess maybe I'm looking at this from a mom's perspective rather than a 17 year old girl, but I swear, I think my first instinct would have been to check on the children. Even even after they left and told me not to disturb them, my first instinct would, when they left would be to go up there and kind of open the door and check on the children. So I'm kind of shocked like she never did, she never did that. She just kind of went, oh, okay. Well, I think it, that's a good point to bring in. She doesn't know these people. Like, cause she mispronounces the name at first. Like you can tell she got this job like through a referral. Probably she doesn't know them. If she knew them, it might be different, but I think because she doesn't know them and she's not a mom, she is a kid and maybe she just doesn't, I don't know, you know, cause later on she is like super mom or whatever. But at, at this point, maybe that's just not who she is. And she's just listening. Okay. This woman doesn't want me to bother her children. And she's kind of weird about it. I'm just going to sit in the living room. <laughs> cause you got to admit, Mrs. Mendrakis is kind of, you know, anal retentive about it. <laughs> I mean, she's you know, barking out. She meets this girl. And the first two things she does is order, 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 order. And I'm sure Jill's is like, okay, yeah, I got it. I got it. See ya. You know, dad's much more, you know, the doctor's much more friendly, but the mom's a little, I don't know. I kind of got the idea that like, I could see mom as like the community activist, you know, on top of everything, run the PTA kind of woman, you know, and, and dad's sitting over there with his hand in his, you know, faith so stuff like that but i got the I, I could buy it because it is a gimme you have to give the film because it gives you a reason for jill to be downstairs and the idea that he could be upstairs 
and then could start harassing her without her ever thinking it's coming from inside the house, right? And she gets that first phone call, and it's just that simple, have you checked the children? And she's like, what? And click, that's it. And nothing really happens. And then she gets a couple of more. And the, the question changes. Why haven't you checked the children? Even he's wondering, why aren't you coming up here and checking on these kids? And so maybe he doesn't know that mom's told told her not to. I don't know. But it, it starts to build the creep factor because you realize quickly this isn't going to end. And I mean, certainly it's the crux of the whole film is that she's going to get these harassing calls and they're going to increase. And the thing that sells the tension here for me almost as much as anything is Carol Kane's facial expressions when she's on the phone really give you an idea that she's starting to get creeped out. And then they start dinking in those little, you know, percussion sounds and those strings and like the clock moving and it all starts to build slowly, but it's this sort of creepy factor that's going on in the background while her face is reacting to these odd calls. Well, I think that's one of the things with your imagination because the set is uh, during this sequence is mostly even before she turns the lights out, it's mostly dark and the only lighting is on her face. Yeah. Mm. So it's just, it's just, it, one of the other things, though, is the sound design, because every time well, after one of the calls, she hangs up and you can tell she's freaked out about it. And then you hear the ice maker drop the ice and you hear that string thing. And you wonder, is something moving? And I've been in the house alone before when the ice maker goes off or the fridge you know, rattles or something. And if you're watching something kind of weird or you're absorbed in something, it can, it can really creep you out. I mean, those kind of noises get to oh, my, me. <laughs> my ice maker creeps me out in general. It seems <laughs> like it always makes ice at the most inopportune time. It's like when the house is real quiet or I'm alone or something like that. And it's like you hear, you hear the ice. Ice maker like da 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 like the ice drop or whatever and I'm I'm always like it's, I was like my ice maker just creeps me out. <laughs> well, and that's the whole thing is that it's supposed to get you on the edge of your seat and kind of you know ratchet up the tension. And you said you watched it on your lunch breaks at work, and even doing so, you can still start to feel it build. You know, as she's slowly creeping in the kitchen and she opens up the fridge, and like you said, the only lighting is just the stuff that's on her face. And I do think that gives this a real ominous feel. It does. And then the other thing was, because like we've established, scary movies are not my forte. I was like, okay, I'm going to watch this at work. And, you know, like most people have like the dual screens and stuff. I'm like, I'll try to do something else or something. But I do have to say this sequence, I wouldn't necessarily say it's like a train wreck, but it draws you you in. And I, like you say, I don't know if it's the lighting or like we were talking about or the music or but it just draws you in and you have to look at it and what kind of flabbergasted me about that is you have to look at it even though there's nothing really to look at yeah like you said it's not a halloween it's not a nightmare on elm street freddy krueger is not gonna pop out and attack you it's not scream or something but it's and you but you're draw you are are drawn to it and it's this part is the one that you're drawn to the most and i don't know if like you like we said earlier if it's the music if it's the lighting if it's her facial expressions is it the just the simpleness of the have you checked the children but it it really draws you to look even though there's nothing there i think you've you've hit it there's nothing there and so it all rests on the performance this is very much a monologue for Carol Kane for 20 minutes. And she maybe only has, you know, two dozen lines. 
the whole time. So it's all in the way she's moving around this dark place, and she keeps getting these phone calls, and they get increasingly weirder. And she finally calls the cops. And I love the the Sergeant Sacker guy who's like, well, blow a whistle in the phone. He'll probably break his eardrum. You know, it's just a pervert. And she's like, no, it's it's really not. And but hasn't haven't you ever felt that way? And I think that was a trope of the seventies in particular, is that the authorities are no help to you when you can't really explain what the problem is. And I don't know how I would have explained it either. I'm just like she says, he just keeps calling, you know, and it weirds her out. And, you know, she keeps calling back to the cops and they're like, There's there's nothing we can do if you can't keep him on the phone long enough for us to trace it. And I don't think in 1970, whatever, though, they could trace a call inside of a minute anyway, but whatever, you know, you have to kind of go with that piece. But that's the whole bit is that she's got to somehow or another figure out how to keep him on the phone. And that that's another thing when we get to that call. And I think we're at that point now, you know, she's sitting there with the umbrella, which is going to, I guess, is going to be her protection or whatever. And she's waiting on the call and she gets it and she doesn't say anything. And this is the first time she hasn't said anything when she's picked up the phone, and he's just breathing. And I was going to ask you, what do you think makes him stay on the phone with her for that long that time? I don't know. I thought that as I was watching it as well. I, I, I was wondering I, – I was honestly wondering the same thing, and I couldn't really come up with a good answer as to why he did it. Maybe because she was actually engaging, and that's what – I mean, that's what he wants. He wanted her to come up and check check the children, so to speak, and in a weird way, it would be engaging with him. And I think because she was actually engaging with him, and he might have seen this as an opportunity that to, that he would get her up there to finally check the children, and, and he can do whatever he was going to do to her. Right. I, I I don't know. That's an interesting take on it. I've often wondered, and that's a I hadn't thought about that. That's a good point, but. She finally starts, you know, talking with him. And I'll say, though, that they blow part of the tension here for me because this gets to a real crescendo and then it drops for a second. She's going, you know, I'll I'll turn the lights back up if you want. No, 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 no. Leave them down. And she's like, well, you scared me if that's what you wanted. And he's like, no. And then she says, well, what do you want? And he does that whole I want your blood all over me. And I'm like, she should have slammed the phone down right then. Like the whole bit about I've called the police, they're coming, and then he hangs up. Like that, that sort of undercut that for me. What, what did you think? Well, I thought it's realistic. I thought that's what a babysitter would say. Oh, I've called the police. But on that note, as I'm watching it, I thought, I thought, um, um, d- doesn't he know that's why she was keeping her on the phone? Yeah, that's what you know, kind of ruined it for that's, me. That's a good point man. because you could kind yeah. of. I mean, because to a point. You can you can say that she was finally engaging and he was intrigued and stuff, but I'm like I'm like he, okay he's called and done the breathing and done the have you checked the children click that was the first th- first thing he did. It's like doesn't it didn't he doesn't he didn't he didn't that run through his mind before she said oh I called the police you know that that's something that I kind of thought was a little bit of a, a hole in the. It, it's a, it's a cheat. It's a little bit of a cheat. But again, if they've done their job, which at this point I think they have, of ratcheting up that tension, you're at the point now where you realize she's just, you know, let loose her best play. And he's like, you did what? And then he slams the phone down and she's like, uh-oh. And that's when we – and this is the best, like, 20 seconds here. I mean, literally, the door is maybe 10 feet from the couch she's sitting on. And you would have thought it was a half a mile. As long as it takes her to get up, get to the door, start unbolting it, and you have all this music and the clock going and the door slowly. 
slowly opening and here he comes out of the shadows. I that whole bit works totally for me cuz you again you buy that it's this long distance she's got to cover and it's really like I said less than 10 feet and of course opens up on Charles Durning's face which of course would make everyone scream bloody murder. But I I, I thought that was a great end to that scene and this whole sequence builds up to that moment and I I really dug it. I thought it was great. It was the the first 20 minutes, as we've said, are the best part of the movie. And yeah, we find these little nitpicky plot holes, but but overall, it's a 9 out of 10, you know, we or a 9.5 out of 10. It does what it needs to do. It's suspenseful. They've hit the, like we've said, they've hit the lighting right. They've hit the 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 music right and the the sound and not just the music but the sounds like the ice maker and the door creaking and the phone ringing and the heavy breathing they've hit everything on cue to give you the right amount of suspense yes there's a couple of little holes that kind of ruin can kind of ruin it if you overthink it but all in all it's a nine out of ten yeah and we find out we find out in that aftermath what has happened have Ron O'Neill, who's the first officer on the scene, he meets Clifford Charles Durning, the lieutenant, and he gives him the whole lowdown. You know, uh, we you know we found him. He's just been in the country, you know, less than a month. Came in from England. We don't know anything about him. The children have been dead for you know a long time. And there's the parents sitting over there on the couch, just sobbing away. And I love how they dismiss Jill here. And I, I honestly, the first time I saw this movie, I thought, well, we'll never see her again because you know that that was the, she ran out of the house and she's gone, right? It, because all he says about her is, eh, she'll be okay. You know, and the lieutenant's like, fine. And then he goes over and he has to talk to the parents. And I love how they just sort of fade out on that. So you don't hear all of it, but you hear him try to be real diplomatic. Like, I'm, this won't take a lot of time. I'm very sorry, but I've got to talk to you just a little bit. You know, he's got he's to do his job. And you really feel for the guy. I know. And on that note, something I thought was also kind of creepy, but uh, it was kind of creepy. And I was kind of surprised they did this, is if you notice that they carry the children out in body bags, but they're not on like a gurney. The police are like holding on like a sack of potatoes. Yeah. And did you ever, I I did. To me, that's kind of a, a, that's kind of a, I don't know. That's, I don't know if it's cause I I have children or what, but that struck me as really not necessarily creepy, but I, number one, I didn't think of police. I mean, if you if you watch Law and Order or CSI or something, even if it's a kid, nobody's carrying a body bag out like a sack of potatoes. They're always on like a gurney or something. Or if they're not on a gurney, it's like, you know, two people holding the bag, the bag. And I don't know if this was kind of a, a ploy to let us know without knowing that the children were very small or I think it's two things that they're really small. And later on, Clifford, in one of his explanations to somebody when he's trying to talk about how dangerous he is, is that, you know, we find out that Duncan, the killer, basically tore him apart with his bare hands. So, you know, not to be grotesque, maybe they're in multiple pieces. You know, I mean, that's God, that's awful to think about. Other thing, like like I said, like they're carrying them out like a sack of like a sack of potato, potatoes. Exactly. So. I mean, and you know they're carrying them out, and they're their parents sitting in the living room. Ex- I mean, yeah. I can't even so, imagine what that would feel I, like. You know. Yeah, I just I just thought it was kind of showing the audience without really showing them and kind of letting the imagination go back to work that of what total disregard um, the killer or 
or they had for these ch- or had for these children. You you mentioned it there. It's it's a subtle way of being unnerving, but at no time has this film been gory. We hadn't seen one drop of blood. We hadn't even seen the killer. We only saw you know a shadow at this point, and we've heard his voice, and that's been it. And you know, 20 minutes into the movie, at some point they had to show you something. I mean, the original Friday the 13th didn't because it was a big whodunit, you know. But in Halloween, you knew, you know, you saw Michael Myers kill somebody inside of five minutes. You know, I mean, that's that's just part of the deal is you see him do it. And this one hides that, and it, it adds to the tension. But this is the end of Act 1, and like we see, 9 out of 10, this has been grand. Then we go to seven years later, and we see the old beat-up Ford you know, driving up to a, a house, and it's Clifford. And he's gone to meet the doctor. And they have this whole conversation that apparently Kirk Duncan has escaped from this mental institution, this asylum where he's been sent, and they don't know where he is. And I didn't get at the time that he was hiring him to go kill him. I understood he was hiring him to, I want you to find him and take him back to the loony bin. What did you get it as? I got, I got that, that he was going to um, hire him and take him back. But I thought it was Clifford's kind of obsession that he was going to take it one step further. That's how I interpreted it, that Clifford's obsession was going to, Clifford's like, okay, screw this. I know he said bring him back, but I'm going to kill, I mean, for lack of a better term, the son of a bitch. I'm going to kill him. This is where this film starts to borrow from, you know, Van Helsing, Dracula, Halloween, all of that, where the there's one person on the trail of the madman, you know, and he's not going to bring him back. It's to destroy him. You know, that's that, that whole bit. And I, I can see that in all of this. And I, I think the evolution of how Clifford gets there is interesting. We could, we can talk about it as we get into him here, but he looks like a man who, you know, he tells you, I've been doing this for three years, you know, it's seven years later. So he spent four years still as a, as a, you know, the lieutenant before he retired. And when he gets into the argument at the mental institution with the doctor and she's saying it's all in the file and he's like, I didn't come here to read the file. Tell me, you know, what's going on with this guy so I can find him. And he goes through this whole elaborate description of what Duncan did and how long the trial took and all this stuff. You realize that Kurt Duncan kind of ruined his career. You know, that it, it turned him so sour that he's become so focused on this one guy that he gave up being a cop so he could be, you know, a private detective and put people like that away. Because maybe as a police officer, he had. Oh, oh, did you get me there? Sorry. That he had become that he had become unhinged because of this experience. Yeah. I can see that. I, I see that. But I just don't think they really this is and I'm, I'm I'm this is just the part where the whole thing kind of lo- lost me. I mean, this is just the yeah. beginning of where the whole thing kind kind of lost me. And this part is not not the worst <laughs> not the worst part of it, <laughs> but it I mean, even the opening sequence is more believable than 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 this the opening sequence is more okay you got the babysitter or someone's in the house i mean to me that's even more believable than this whole second part and and i I mean they caught the guy i mean it's just where i mean all i can say is this is just where it starts falling apart for me it does because they do something interesting here they shift perspectives the first part of this movie was about jill the babysitter being terrorized by this unknown man right and then we we throw her totally out of the story. And it's about this private detective who used to be the cop, 
working with the former cops. Ron O'Neill comes back in here and he's like, I need your help tracking this guy. And it's about, it's his perspective. And then it's also about Duncan. And it's, and this is what makes this film unique is most of the time, horror films don't bother to try to explain the killer until very many sequels in. And it, it almost always works about as badly as it does here, but they put this man on the screen. Tony Beckley is a British actor who should be noted died very shortly after the photography was done on this film. He never even saw it. He was terminally ill when they shot this and you can tell he doesn't look well. So if they were going for someone who looked like they could be unhinged and right out of a loony bin, it works. The problem is he's so physically frail that it's hard to buy that he could have ever done what he did. You know, the only conceit you could give it is that, and this is, I read this from one review, which I thought was hilarious. And it's the most, you know, give it to the film as you can is that, well, he's been locked away for seven years. What do you expect him to look like? I'm like, that's, uh, you know, let's not act like the entire mental health organization of of the United States is so bad that you come out looking like that. Like that's, you know, that's what you're meant to believe though, because they try to build sympathy for the guy. He's in the bar. And you know who he is immediately because of the accent. You know, he's like, oh, that's him. That's got to be him. And he starts talking to this woman. And, she, of course, she wants nothing to do with him. And he basically gets the crap beat out of him for hitting on her in the bar. So now I'm supposed to feel sympathy for a guy who murdered two children. That's a false step, in my opinion. Yeah, and that's why it starts to fall apart at, at um this at this point in the movie. But the actress who played Tracy, yeah, she talk, talk was um, Murphy. Wasn't she Murphy Brown's mother on um, Murphy Brown? When I've seen her play these really tough characters. And I mean, I mean, I was looking at her and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's Murphy Brown's mom. And I'm like, what the the hell? She could kick his ass. Yeah, that's the thing is I got this idea that Tracy was this rough. Yeah, rough woman. And I'm like, she could beat this guy up. <laughs> I'm like, what, is, what are we doing here? Yeah, I'm like, why is this even happening? I mean, she could have ki- she could have kicked this guy's ass and ended the movie right there. See, the thing to me is, and I don't know why they have this in here of him stalking this woman. and he, Because at some point, we're supposed to believe he's going to turn on her. But he only becomes violent with her when Clifford, who's going around showing his picture to everybody, goes to that bar and the bar says, yeah, he hit on this girl and there she is. And he follows her home and they talk and, and uh, Duncan oversees this. And then when he comes back, you know, I mean, that's the only time he gets violent with her. So I, I don't know what what we're supposed to do is that he's supposed to be making some kind of trying to make human connections after seven years of institutionalization. I don't know, because this all seems really strange. Why would he do that? You know, why the heck would he even stay here? Why wouldn't he get the heck out of Dodge, get on a boat, sail back to England, you know, whatever. I, I know he's got no money, but clearly he can stow away. I mean, if he can escape from a mental institution, he can do some things right. So, and that's never explained either. And that's what kills me. They needed to explain how that happened. You know, I mean, the doctor's just like, yeah, it happens. No big deal. I'm like, yeah, no, that matters. We need to know how he got out. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, it's not. Not like it's Arkham Asylum or something. Well, this is true. It's, it's not, it's um, not max security, but the point is he was well, away well, for, no, I, for I, a capital I was crime. making a point because, <laughs> no, what I was trying to say is like in Batman, they always escape from Arkham. They're always escaping from Arkham Asylum. And I'm like, I, I would think this would have a pretty good security. It's not like Arkham Asylum where the Joker and the Riddler and everybody just seems to escape willy-nilly i would think this would have a little more security and then also on that point i was thinking as one of the 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 reviews and the complaints 
with this movie is that he is so frail. How could he have done that to the children? Well, then, as frail as he looks after seven years in that institution, how is how was he physically able to escape, too? Yeah, that's another thing. I mean, and I think what they're trying to show us here is that, you know, at the first of it, Clifford hears this ranting and raving tape of him you know, refusing to take his medicine and basically having to be restrained, right? And he just goes mad. Mm-hmm. And then we see him, and he's a much more docile creature. And he's very polite, and he's just trying to get along, and he's not la la la. You know, he's it, it, you see him, and I think we're supposed to go, oh, see, he's he's crazy. So as long as he doesn't go wild, he's okay. But when he's cornered, is when he loses his mind, and and you know, now he's been cornered a couple of times. When's he gonna go off again? I mean, that's the whole. I think that's what. But we're did you? But no, did you notice that? I noticed this in the tape from the mental institution. Is he? kind of had two voices he had the he had kind of this crazy psychotic voice that you heard i think when they were trying to restrain him and give him his medicine but then he also had kind of that calm docile voice that said have you checked the children why haven't you checked the children um and so i took it as he was stalking some prey he was look as he was stalking his prey he was looking for someone to stalk. I don't get it that he was just trying to fit in. I think he was looking for his next victim. Can I tell you, the movie works a lot better if you go with it like that. The problem is it doesn't play that way. And they didn't set it up enough for me to, to get that immediately. I have to put that together over on you know a lot of different viewings or something. So I, I think that's a good idea, is that if we would have... I don't know, we needed a glimmer in his eye... Uh, something in his voice one time when he talked to her, something to give us this idea that like, I'm just trying to get you out in the street so I can break your neck, you know, that kind of thing. Then, but I just thought he was just trying to hit on her and, and I, it's not supposed to play that way, but that's how it plays. And that's, that's the problem with it. But the whole thing is that Clifford is on his tail and this whole time we go back and forth between Duncan and this woman and he's talking to her and he kind of shows up at her apartment and she has to, you know, escort him out and then he tries to get back in and there's all this back and forth and Clifford's looking for him. And at some point he decides to go to his old cop buddy again, Ron O'Neill, and he just tells him, I'm going to need your help with this. I'm going to kill him. And he confesses that to his friend and, you know, the cop shuts the door. He's like, you're really putting a strain on our friendship here, you know? And he, I love that whole conversation though. It's like the, he, that's why I thought Mandrak has hired him probably to find him. But like you said, over the course of this, he's decided I've got to take this guy out. There's just no way this guy can be allowed to, to stay around. And, he decides to kill him, and this is the weirdest thing, and it took me a long time to kind of get my head around this. I'm curious what you think of it. He says he's going to kill him with lock needles, you know, and I had to look it up, and apparently you can kill somebody with a lock needle pretty quickly and easily. You just kind of stab them behind the ear, basically, and it just sort of, you know, punctures their brain and just kind of turns them off. And you see him throw a couple of them like a dart. I mean, I don't know. I thought that was a weird thing for him to to say. You know, they had that whole conversation, and then the cop is like, "Well, make it look good." And I'm like, well, "What? Are, what are you saying?" <laughs> you should be like, "I don't need to hear this, man. I'm going to arrest you." Yeah, in one sentence, this is going to put strain on our friendship, and the next sentence, well, if you're going to do it, make it look good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what kind of cop is this? <laughs> But yeah, yeah this I mean, is the uneven parts of the screenplay that, like you say, it starts to fall apart. It's like it's a decent idea. It's just executed so badly. And I think we kind of buy the idea that Clifford is going to be he's going to try to kill him. 
I don't know that I needed him to go confess that to his cop buddy. You know, <laughs> maybe I don't know if there could have been somebody else. Or I, but, just and you us, think you if know? he was cop, if he was a cop for so long, then don't you think the dumbest thing you could do is confess to another cop? Oh yeah, by the way, I'm gonna kill this person. You know, yeah. I mean, if you're a cop for so, I mean, this is this is um a stupid analogy, but um um one of my uh, friends at work who I've mentioned to you before i'll ask a question i always get kind of this round about answer and i'm like okay can't you just answer me you know bluntly or directly or straightforward and um and it's he's like well um it's from all these years of auditing and then you got to do this and you got to investigate and stuff like that and i'm i'm like okay well just you know just give me a straight answer if i ask you a plus b you know you got to give me equal c and I mean, I wonder if it's like I would think with all those years of investigating, he would give like this vague answer, like, yeah. like, well, like, you know, I'm, I'm going away for a while and and, you know, I'll, I'll talk to you next year, <laughs> you know, something like that instead of I'm going to like I'm going to find him and take him back, but I'm not going to let him hurt anybody or something, you know, something that vague where you don't blatantly bluntly go oh oh yeah i'm 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 gonna kill him yeah, you know it, it is you don't blatantly go i'm gonna find him and i'm gonna kill him to yeah. your cop franco but you know if I, I don't you know i can't say that if the opportunity came where i had to take him out i wouldn't enjoy it or something like that you know and i'm gonna kill you in this weird way with these needles that these lock yeah it's such a strange needles that i'm just gonna I'm going to throw like darts. It's a stretch. I mean, strange plot point. It's a stretch. It yeah, it is it's a big stretch. Like, again, I was cool if if he just decided to kill him and then just announce that to the world or something. Or I don't, I don't know how he, he could have got it out. But I, I even bought maybe, you know, he was just going to do it all along. That's fine. That whole conversation was weird. But mm-hmm. he, he indeed fin- finally catches up with him because he goes back to Tracy's apartment and he's looking for him and he, he leaves. And then, of course, Duncan's right there and he starts to attack her and she somehow or another makes a noise and here comes Clifford. He gets in and he just misses Duncan. And then they do this whole cat and mouse through the downtown streets, you know, and there are, there are, you know, he's, he, it goes on forever. Like this is too long in some ways. Like I get really tired of watching Duncan throw stuff in front of him and the fat man trying to run past it. Like it, it was a little weird. I'm like that little wiry dude could totally outrun this guy. I'm sorry. Charles <laughs> Durning. There's no way you're keeping up with this guy without like having a coronary. So, yeah, even thirty years ago. So. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he's. I mean, he's a little butterball. That's Charles Durning. He's kind of always been that little, you know, fat man. I mean, he's just that's who he is, you know. And he's just waddling around, but he keeps getting closer and closer. And finally, he loses track of the guy. And then the weird thing happens. And this is where the movie tries to be suspenseful and weird again. Duncan gets himself off in like a homeless shelter. And he's in the bathroom and he's cleaning himself up and he's standing before a mirror. And this is, this was a bad shot. They should have never showed his chest because he looks so sick. Bless his heart. And he's like, he's having a total mental breakdown at that point. And he starts having these quick flashbacks and you see him in the children's bedroom, like lifting up the sheets and talking on the phone and covered in blood. And that's the only time this film goes there. And I thought that was done quite well. It comes at a weird moment, but I did like those flashbacks. It does. And maybe stuff like that should have come 
came sooner because I don't like, I think that this is one of the, the plot holes. Like we're seeing him when he's in the bar as just, you know, you're, it can be interpreted that he's just trying to fit into society. He's just trying to, you know, make friends, so to speak. And then, and then um, Clifford comes and just kind of everything goes to hell in handbasket. And then, if we had seen these images or something like that before this point, we it would kind of be showing us kind of like a glimpse into his mind, showing us exactly how disturbed he is. But now it's just it's at a point where it's too little, too late. Like I could have bought this if he had been if the first time we see Duncan, he's standing in the bathroom of the bar and he's doing that whole touch the mirror, but he's fully closed still and he's having those flashbacks. Then he walks out and goes and sits at the bar. I, I'm with you. That would have worked better there because then I'd have been like, oh my, the killer's loose and he's looking for more prey. You know, then I would have bought it. But here, it it just the only thing this serves to do is ratchet up tension in a movie that's lost tension for the last 35 minutes. And and that's desperately what they're trying to do because Clifford finds him there through you know some of the other homeless people that he's met on the way and he tries to chase him and stab him and they go through another chase scene and he loses him in like all these containers and that's when you see Kirk Duncan totally lose his mind because he does this whole little you know thing is like I, I'm not here nobody can touch me I was never born you know and I kind of liked that I liked the way that played because you can tell there he's totally lost his mind he's gone he's he's completely flipped at that point but Clifford's missed him. So he's still at large. And that sets up Act 3. And I got to tell you, this is one of the biggest gimmies I've ever been asked to give in a film. He's walking on the street, and he sees a paper newspaper blow across his feet, picks it up, and on the bottom fold is Jill, who's all grown up and is in the community activism now and is married and all this. And that's how he reconnects to her. How did and, uh- how did you buy how on more plot holes? Story? Yeah. Yes, on plot holes. Okay, We're, this is supposed to be seven years later. Say she was like eighteen or not, like a college student, an eighteen, a eighteen, nineteen year old college student, and, and so seven years later she'd be twenty five, twenty six. Right. Okay. Okay. First off, in the first scene, it's dark. It, it's dark. Even when the, she has the light on, it's dark. He's upstairs. How would he get a really good shot of her of her face? And then, granted, I mean, the, I I don't know about you, but I I mean, I didn't look totally different than what I did at seventeen, eighteen, nineteen years old. I didn't look totally different at twenty five, but I mean, you could still be able to tell it's me. But if you weren't like someone who saw me every day or saw a picture of me back then or knew me, you just were this crazy person who saw me in this dark house while I was too busy covered in blood murdering the children, then how can you automatically look at that and go, oh yeah, that's the babysitter from the house where I killed the kids. I got to go find her and kill her. You you have, you have hit on the biggest problem I have with this movie. And, And it comes at this moment with all the stuff that's fallen apart with it here. This is the thing where they shove her back into the story that just bothers me. He saw her clearly once when she's unlocking the door and she turns around and sees his shadow coming out of that door. You can get an idea. That was probably the one good time he got a look at her in the light. And then she runs outside. How would he even remember her after years of electroshock therapy, psych- you know, all kinds of psychiatric drugs, 
plus the fact that he's flipping crazy, how would he remember her and why would he care? All she did was run away from him. You know, it would it would make more sense to me if in the third act, somehow or another, Clifford goes back to the doctor and's like, I failed, I lost him, blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden he shows up at Clifford's apartment. If he started stalking the cop, I would buy that because he's seen him a lot. You know, you well, figure he would have seen him a lot in, in jail and at the court and all this stuff. He's seen Jill probably three times in his life. He saw her in, in the distance in the dark. He saw her at the light at the door one time, and he probably saw her once in court. And I doubt he would know anything about her. And why would he care? Again, that makes no sense to shove her back into this story like that. Well, the other thing is, if they're going to shove her in, I think it would make more sense more than a newspaper running across in his line of sight. It would, If she's this community activist it would, and he's homeless, it would yeah. make more sense that she's serving soup at a shelter and and the voice, he recognizes the voice, or she's on the radio talking about this pro- oh. project or this philanthropy or her award, and he hears the voice over the radio. You, you've just fixed I think it. That she, if they're she going should have to- been working a soup line and not, she, you know, he didn't say anything, but he recognized her, and he looks at her, and yes. then he follows her home, and then the whole bit goes down. Like, that I would have bought. You know, that would have been so much better than what we get, because what we get is we are to assume now that because we go to Jill's life and she's got a pretty good life, nice house, two really cute kids and a husband with the super 70s hair. And, and, you know, he calls her. He's like, honey, put on your best dress. We're going out to dinner. Big news, blah, blah, blah. And what we find out is and what I find funny is that whole rant that the like, you know, Dr. Mandrakis, wife went on with her. She now gives the same thing. <laughs> to the new babysitter, except Carol Kane doesn't have a real demonstrative voice. So it sounds kind of like a pixie fairy doing it. Cause she's funny. You know, she, I mean, she is a funny woman. I mean, she's a comedian by trade. I mean, she's a really, she has a funny voice and she's doing this whole night. She's this little sing songy thing. And I just am laughing. I'm going somewhere in her head. She has repressed this awful thing that has happened to her because she doesn't realize she's doing the same thing. You know, but that's what we're supposed to see is that there's this juxtaposition between these two acts and it's just not there. And, you know, of course, we see them at the restaurant. And this is the part that gets me is how does he know to call her at the restaurant? And does he sneak in the house and the babysitter's not looking and get the phone number and then go back upstairs and call? I mean, how does all that happen? And the babysitter never know, because unlike the Mandrakis' house, her house is well lit. And and it's also not built where you could walk around in it like that. Like, it doesn't make any sense. It's it's supposed to be this plot contrivance. We have to give the plot because it's what we want. You know, we want him to, you know, them two to face off again. But it's really, it's really, really cheating for them to put it back together like this. It's just like as the movie goes, the, the holes and the believability get worse and worse and worse. And and bigger, and bigger and bigger till it's at a point where it might as well be an animated Disney movie or something. <laughs> well, it, it, it gets even so worse. unbelievable because of course she flips out and loses her shit at the restaurant and her husband and her go back home. And of course, everything's cool, you know, and she but she is incessantly checking her kids and she notices her son has candy. And she's like, where'd you get that from? And he's like, I got it from the man. And she's like, what man? 
And I'm like, at that point, like, I'm like, lady, turn the lights on and start grabbing the guns. What are you doing walking around in the kitchen, getting a glass of milk in the dark? You're out of your mind, you know? And she goes back to bed, and now Kurt Duncan is Did she not not learn her lesson? Yeah, and not only, not only is he, like, this master, like, cat burglar, apparently, but he's also a ventriloquist. (laughs) So, which we're going to get to again, I'll just go ahead and tell you. But he's a ventriloquist because he starts doing this, the closet doors cracked and she thinks her husband's laying there sleeping. She hears, you knew I came back, didn't you? And I had to come back for you. And I'm like, no, you didn't. Why? It was so ridiculous, that whole bit. But of course the deal is he's laying next to her. And when she wakes him up, he gives her that, that, what does he do? Does he hiss at her? It's so stupid. <laughs> so, I mean, it's almost like the first time I saw it, I was like, Oh no, the killer's in bed every time since. And I do mean this. I always laugh when I see that. I just start laughing hysterically and I'm not supposed to. <laughs> it's, it's just wrong on so many levels. <laughs> but, but the, the whole thing is, and this is, and this is the funny thing is though, there's actually something good in the plot that works for this, the, how we get Clifford there. This is actually good police work. His cop buddy is sitting there playing cards with his other cops on the break room or whatever, and he overhears two guys going, hey, you know, wasn't this the girl that called in the original Kurt Duncan thing again? Maybe she did get a call from him tonight. Didn't he escape? He overhears that. And then he's the one who tells Cliff that, and Cliff, you know, calls her and doesn't get an answer, and that's how he hightails it over there. Yes, the, uh, he calls the man who blatantly told him he's going to kill him. That, yeah, the cop. Yeah, yeah good <laughs> police work there, dude. Yeah, well, obviously his morals are low. That that strained friendship didn't last long, because <laughs> of course he rolls in and he just shoots him twice. You know, and that that's it. He shoots him and his eyes close and. That's it. And and the end of it is Jill doing the Laurie Strode at the end of Halloween and crumpling into his arms. You know, was that the boogeyman? You know, I mean, that's that's exactly if you've ever seen that movie, that's exactly what happens here at the end. And we end with that creepy theme and that's it. And that's the whole movie. I mean, what did you think of the very end of that? Did you buy that at all? Not the setup so much, but is it satisfying how it goes down in the end? No, because I honestly think the, the the number one problem with this movie is that it's satisfied in the first twenty minutes. It should have been a short, like it was. It was intended. I think. I think that is the problem with with the end of the movie. It's satisfied in the first twenty twenty five minutes. There's no need to go. Even if I think if I were redoing it, number one, I would instead of seeing a newspaper from across i would have like i said have jill in the soup kitchen you know the voice and and kind of seeing her in person he would be more i think that would be more believable that he would recognize her and she might not so much recognize him at that point because you know she's repressed this maybe and she didn't really get a good look at him either so um or from what we've seen so um i think that I would have changed that. And then the whole middle part with the bar fight and Tracy and everything that just needed to, that just needed to go. That did not add anything to the plot. All it was, was about what, 20, 30, maybe even 40 minutes. I wasn't keeping time of probably about 30 minutes of just him, of just Clifford chasing Duncan. It was just 30 minutes of Clifford and Duncan and, Duncan being a little scrappy, scrawny guy, being able to outrun the little butterball that is <laughs> Charles Durning. So, yeah. I mean, that's all that wa- that was. And then, so it's it's 
hard when you have that opening to come back with a satisfying climate, Max, at the end. That's a good point, and I think we're at the point of the podcast where it's time to do final recommendations and popcorn ratings. So what are yours for When a Stranger Calls? Oh, my goodness. I am not okay. I'm not a horror, horror movie fan. I'm not a thriller fan, and honestly, this was more disturbing than I'm like, please show me some blood, please, for the love of God, I won't be so scared. Um, but I think... Now, if you like suspense, suspenseful thrillers, I would definitely give this a large popcorn, especially and maybe just watch the first 20 minutes because that's all you really need to watch. The other part, the second and third act just absolutely fall apart. So I'm going to give the first 20 minutes like a large popcorn if you like um, if you like these suspenseful thrillers, kind of scary movie type things. Now, if you're like me and you get a little uneasy and this really kind of isn't your thing, then I would still give it like a medium popcorn. And like I said, maybe just the first tw- 20 minutes. But the I mean, the rest of the movie is just absolutely nothing. It's not really that scary. It's not really that suspenseful. And like you say, they don't ever show any blood or gore or anything like that. So it's really just the first 20 minutes. Well, but I would it, definitely give it a medium horn. Well, I agree with what you're saying. And I, I, I'm a fan of this, but I will never defend it beyond its first 20 minutes because it is very meddling and it falls apart and it's, it is indefensible. It's, it's awful in the end. It really is. It's, it's just a joke. But I think that first 20 minutes is something that if, if you're into thrillers or even if you're not and you just want a quick you know, jump scare and you don't want to be grossed out, this is your thing, folks. You can find it on YouTube. You don't even have to rent the thing if you don't want to nowadays. You can watch the opening sequence. And it is genuinely unnerving. And I think it's one of the, it, the best. I, and I am. I am here to testify that as in regards to my email, it is, yeah. it took me two nights to get over that. Uh, it I, is very unnerving. I will say that's the best part of this. And I think that's the issue with this movie. And it's going to be something we need to talk about in the sequel that's coming up. And then in the remake is, do they realize what they have here? Because what they have here is this opening and they blow it all then. And then it's, well, nothing. Because of the fact that this falls apart in the last two-thirds, I can't give this more than medium popcorn. And the only reason I give it a medium is because the opening is so good. And I do think the opening's worth seeing, but beyond that, it's just not that good, and it, it's downright bad in some points. I was thinking of the one that was in, what, 2006? Yeah. The remake? Right. Yeah. We're in the age of cell phones. I mean... I have a landline, but it came with my cable bill, so I have no clue what the number is, and I don't even have a phone hooked up to it. I mean, we use our our cell phones, so the whole thing to me is more believable in the cell phone era. I mean, even today, probably the home person, the the Kirk Duncan homeless person, would probably have a cell phone in the movie. Some. Somewhere he got a track phone. They deal with that in a really unique way. It'll be fun to get to that when we get there. But, you know, we talked, there's a sequel to this that came out in 1993. It was supposed to go to theaters and it didn't. It wound up getting directed to DVD, but it's directed by the same guy. Fred Walton got Carol Kane and Charles Durning back for When a Stranger Calls Back. And I'm really curious to see your thoughts about this one because I've seen it a couple of times. I've seen it a couple of times. I'm curious to revisit this one, the 1993 sequel to this. And we'll have to you know, ask the question we always ask with sequels is, was this trip necessary? Did we need to go back? I'm having a feeling that it wasn't. 
<laughs> this, this is gonna be an unnecessary trip. It's gonna be like um, National Lampoons when they went to Wally World what? and put Grandma or Aunt, so, or Aunt whoever on top of the car when she died. I just have a feeling this is gonna it's, be well, the most unnecessary for you and I. It's gonna be is this Ghostbusters two? Is this Caddyshack two? Or can it surpass those? Because let's face it, I think in the history of of our podcast, and I do include Leprechaun two in this discussion. Those may be the two worst sequels we've ever reviewed, <laughs> and so or at least the most useless ones. At least Leprechaun two tried to have a point. It wasn't a good one, but it tried. I'm curious to see what you think of this one and how well it still works. And then when we get around to that remake, should be a lot of fun. But and then folks, of course, that's not the end of Shocktober. You know we're gonna do it. I've already dropped it a couple times in here. Leprechaun 4 is coming. Yes, Brian and I are going to space with the little green. Oh, talk, talk about unnecessary. <laughs> well, actually, yeah, I'll tell you the reason it's getting reviewed, because the DVDs we bought had four of those films on them. So that's where we oh are. My God, I, but, uh, I bought it for a dollar. That makes you feel any better. But anyway... <laughs> That's coming up at the end of the month. All kinds of fun stuff coming, folks. We really appreciate your support. Thanks for tuning in to Filmstrip. Until next time, for Anna, I'm Jay. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Visit our website, continuousplaypodcast.com, for more reviews and episodes. It's only a movie. It's only a movie. All content used or discussed in this podcast are the property of their respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act Section 504C2, Title 17.